Chapter 13 of Mark uh, is a chapter that you find the similar uh, teaching in, in Luke 21 and also Matthew 24. Uh, this is uh, usually called the Olivet Discourse. There's uh, a number of discourses that Jesus has that are uh, quite long. Uh, the Matthew one is much longer. As you know, Mark kind of... We think Mark was the first one, we're not really sure, but Mark usually a little bit more concise. Um, and when you look at this, this is becomes uh, a text that uh, people for 2,000 years have been uh, trying to completely figure out. So I don't know if we'll figure it out today, but we'll at least give it a shot and maybe give some probabilistic ways of looking at it. Um, but always remember, uh, this is a big word, I know, but it's not that hard. We believe in what's called the perspicuity of, of Scripture, which is a real hard word to say, but it means what we think the word is going to always be true, and if you have trouble with it, it's not trouble with the word, it's trouble with you. Uh, and so, uh, and, and that's because of who God is, who the Spirit is, and who Jesus is. So, as you look at this, the key is to any biblical text is context. Who's, who, who's being talked to in the context? Uh, I know this is hard for people, but the Bible was not written to you, right? I mean, some of it may be what, but, but the idea that the, the, none of this was written to you, it was written, you know, Mark was probably written to a group of, of Christians in the first century, but all of it was written for you. I mean, it all has application for us because it's eternal things, but you got to go back and find out who's he talking to. So, as you go into verse 1, as he, and we know from chapter 12, this is Jesus, remember this is his last week, came out of the temple, okay, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And so this is kind of the context here. This is the temple. Now, a lot of what Jesus predicts down here, because the, what he says in verse 2 is that, do you see these great buildings? Well, what great buildings? Well, this is a, uh, we're not completely sure what this looked like because it hasn't been there for, since 70 AD. But this is one of the, there's a models you can, uh, uh, different places. One, if you go into, uh, it's actually in the part of the new city in Jerusalem, they've got, I would say it's bigger than this sanctuary, probably maybe, I'd say about four times bigger than this. Um, it's a model of what the old city and the temple would have looked like. And this is essentially part of that model. So this is what they're like. It's very ornate. This is just part of it. We'll look a little bit more in a minute. But he says there will not be one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So he's, he's saying that they're saying, oh, this temple's really cool. It's like, well, that, that's neat. It's all going to go down. You know, um, I don't know a good analogy for today. You know, well, this sanctuary looks, you know, this looks really, well, it's all going to freeze up. <laughs> I don't know if that'd be a prophetic thing, but it, it, uh, this, is, this is the context of, of, of where we're looking. And then in verses 3 and 4, we get a little bit more context. So, you know, Jesus knows he's going to go to the cross here in just a couple days. It's probably Wednesday, Tuesday of the first week, or his last week, excuse me. And so he, he's going to go on the Mount of Olives. It says he, he sets on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately, um, tell us when will these things be? 
Well, yeah, what are these things? Well, probably the things we just talked about, right? I mean, it's not really super complicated. And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Um, so in Mark, although this is not necessarily true in Matthew, and it's probably not necessarily true, it's very kind of clear what they're asking here. Um, it seems clearer than, than the other two. But they're on the Mount of Olives, so this is supposed to be a picture to help you kind of get a feel what they're looking at. Um, so they're here on the Mount of You can see the garden up there. They're probably maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, the temple is there, but this is what it would probably look like to them as they're setting. This great complex, you know, you got Solomon's portico over here, you got this, and then you can see kind of the old city. This is that model that they have that you can see if you go to Jerusalem. Because they're asking, and you think about if you're one of these four guys, and they're probably asking in behalf of the other eight, um, this is going to get destroyed, Jesus just said. It sure seems like it. Well, when? When's this going to happen? You know, tell us, you know. So that's the context of this. But, but think about this was seen as one of, the, one of the wonders of the world. You have those seven wonders of the world. This one didn't get on the list, but it probably should have been. Um, you can't quite tell here as much. The top is gold. But you could see, you know, uh, Josephus tells us in his writings that you could see the shining of the gold from 50 miles away, you know, which is a long ways. And so this was just, it was a, it was a point of, of uh, pride for the people. And it was the place that you did all the sacrifice. That's what you do inside that place. The stuff outside the main thing, that's all been, was added by Herod. Uh, and it, it's, it's just an amazing place. Now, right now, you can only go to the west wall. That's all that's left. Uh, sometimes that's called the Wailing Wall. If you've seen that on TV or anything, you can go. It's, it's a so the Temple Mound is still there, but the Temple obviously is not. So the context is this. You know, this is the main context to start off. But as you read through there, you start saying, well, okay, I think I know the context, but I'm not sure this is what Jesus is talking about. And today, you can get on Facebook, you can get on where you want. There's a lot of this in the water right now. You know, because is he talking about this destruction or is he talking about his second coming? That's, that's where we get. Which one is he talking about? Well, what are they asking? They ask two questions here. The first one is, when will this destruction take place? And then the second one is, what will be the sign that will be accompanying this? Um, which is kind of an interesting question. Because uh, you could kind of say, well, the sign would be that the sucker's going to be destroyed. <laughs> you know? But something leading up to it, there, there, it seems like they're saying, perhaps. Um, now, Jesus' answer primarily deals with the second question. As you notice, Jesus does not seem to be overly concerned about timing. Um, even in the book of Revelation, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out the timing. And there's time given, but it's hard to you know, contextualize it. Um, I'm not saying he's not concerned about it. It doesn't always seem to make it as clear as maybe I would like. <laughs> uh, but he does look like he addresses A also, maybe just briefly. And his answer implies that the disciples assumed that the destruction of the temple was going to coincide with the end of the world. You see this more in Matthew. And that was probably thought back then. We're not sure. And, but the idea was that w if this destruction of the temple is going to happen, that's when the second coming is going to happen. They're going to be the same time. Well, we know that's not true, right? Um, although I don't know if you knew this, there are a few people who think that happened then, that Jesus' second coming was in 70 AD. I think that's goofy. Uh, 
Uh, I don't see how you get that from the text, but that's, you know, that's one thing people, but what we know is this didn't happen, but it seems like that's what they were thinking. Because remember, the disciples are thinking he's the Messiah. They don't even know he's, they really haven't understood that he's going to die yet. He's coming to bring in Israel, you know, and, and conquer the Romans. So when we read 5 through 23 and then 24 through 30, with the correct you is essential. Who's he talking to? That's always the start. Doesn't mean it can't apply to other people, but let's start with who he's talking to. I think that gets us in trouble sometimes. Um, so Jesus' answer is primarily concerned with the four or 12, uh, being watchful, being ready to not be deceived through the persecution that they're going to go through. Uh, which makes it very similar to the rest. This is a prophetic word he's giving. You know, this hadn't happened yet. Temple's still there, but it's going to go down. Um, and interestingly enough, I, I, I think I brought this guy up a few times. There was a there was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus that wrote a, three decent books. I mean, but the Jewish Wars tells about this. It's very detailed. Um, and in there, you think, well, but what does he mean not one stone torn? I mean, maybe it's a metaphor that, you know, why do they have to do that? Can't they just, you know, take it over? But what ha if you s there's gold in there. And what happened, it burnt, and the gold, if you know anything about gold, which I didn't until I read about it, the, the gold dripped down into the stones, and so they tore all the stones down to get the gold out of the cracks. So almost literally, Jesus' prediction came true. So... This is a probable way of reading, re I think it's more probable than not, that perhaps verses 5 through 23, which we're going to look at today, are about that 70 AD destruction. Um, along with probably <laughs> 28 through 31. Um, and then those other ones seem to be about a second coming, because he, he's talking about, they're asking questions about these things, and he starts talking about those things. You know, and, and again, it's, it's hard, um, but I think this is one uh, possible way of looking at it. Um, but a, a few fair clarifications, because Jesus always talks uh, as a Jew, because he was a Jew. Uh, he talks about, as we go through there, the birth pang. So let's, let's read through this first section uh, through verse 13. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. You know what I'm going to Who's you? Keep that in your mind. Uh, uh, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So he uses this term birth pains. You know, it's not something we usually use in, in when we look at these things. But in the Old Testament, this is talking about impending judgment. Because if you remember, if you go back, and I should have put this scripture up there, Jesus has already said to them that your house is left to you desolate. The temple doesn't matter to me anymore because you guys aren't following Yahweh. And you're rejecting me, Jesus says. So this is really the way we look at this when s in 70 A.D. When, when Rome comes and completely destroys the temple. This is judgment on the Jewish people for rejecting their Messiah. That's a New Testament way of looking at it. It seems to be the way that Jesus is looking at it. If you go back to Jeremiah, he's talking to the people before the temple's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians back in 
around 586 B.C., is that it may be nice to live in a beautiful palace with wood from the cedars of Lebanon, but soon you will groan with pains of anguish, anguish like that of a woman in labor. That's that same kind of idea. It's the idea that this is the pain that you're going to go through because of your wickedness. But uh, it also gives the idea that the messianic king is going to emerge from a period of suffering. Uh, that's, that's in there also, which we also see in the book of Revelation. So, moving on. But be on your guard. Who's he talking to again? I keep hitting this because we turn this into us in five seconds. Yeah, he's talking to the... the and again, it may have a lot to mean for us, but let's figure out what it means for them first. I like to use this metaphor. If somebody sends you an email and says, I'd like you to come to dinner. And then I read the email, and it's like, hey, this guy wants me to go to dinner. Was that meant for me? No. Did I learn something about these two people? Maybe one wanted to go to dinner and the other one? Sure, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not addressed to me. Does it have meaning for me? Sure. And, and I realize an email to go to dinner and what we see as inerrant word of God are not the same. I realize that. But it's just an analogy. Make sure you know what the pronouns are. So be on your guard, uh, you disciples of mine. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is some pretty tough teaching, isn't it? The one who endures to the end. But he's already told him this, you know, in Matthew 10. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So he's pretty much telling him what he's already told him earlier in his ministry. And then you go on to verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God creating until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But this, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things. There's that you again. It keeps coming up, doesn't it? Well, what about this abomination of desolation? This is actually a Hebrew phrase that comes right out of Daniel 11. And this is a prophecy given to Daniel. It's going to happen in his future. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. It's hard to know exactly what he's talking about. We do know that back in 167 B.C. that the Seleucids, which were part of what Alexander the Great's army was, came in 
and sacrificed a pig on the altar and desecrated the temple. That might be one of the fulfillments of this. We also know that the Romans came in and set up their own stuff before they destroyed it. So that might be it. And surely it's very possible that this might happen again. I mean, that, it, 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 that we always have to leave that open. Um, and it, again, I, I just think a lot of this stuff, I'm giving you a possible look at this. You got to hold on to this a little bit loosely. And if somebody has a little bit different view, just listen to each other. Let iron sharpen iron. But this is kind of what he's talking about. You're going to see this. And, and they did, those who were still around, which it might have just been John <laughs> by then. But he is one of the four um, that was there. Uh, and then verses 15 and 19 that, that, that are also often taken for things that we see as signs for maybe a second coming, you see for them it's, it's really instructions to Jesus for the Christians of the time. You know, when you see this stuff, you know, you wanted a sign, this is going to be your sign. Uh, because nation rises against nation. Well, what nation? The nation of Rome rose against the nation of Israel. Because <laughs> then Israel rose up in the Jewish wars in the 64, 65, 67, and Rome came in with force. And I don't know if you knew that, but Rome won. Um, it was not a pretty deal, and if you... Uh, read through that. So Josephus sh shows that what happened when you get into this, and again, trying to take a text like this and then looking at history and, and jam, it's, it's hard, I realize that. You can always make it work if you already know the answer. Um, I, I think it'd be a good prophet if I already knew the, the answer. You know, Although today I think I was. I, I guess 33 people would come. How many did we end up with? That's, that's got to be darn close. You know, uh, that would be called uh, providential luck, I think. Not, not um, but the, I remember my uh, my mom, who passed away quite a few years ago. She was a, a dear lady, but she would do this quite a bit. Just I thought it was at first it drove me nuts, and then later when I got a little bit more sure, it just was kind of funny. Something would happen, and she'd say, "You know, I knew that was going to happen." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, uh, anybody could say that, you know." I knew it was going to get cold. Well, okay, you know, uh, I knew that the Facebook Live thing was going to be cut off because of uh, Breaker, you know. Well, yeah, after it happens, anybody can do that. Jesus is predicting this before it happens. Isaiah predicts the Messiah coming before it happens. Uh, all this stuff, and that, that's harder, <laughs> if you haven't noticed. That needs some supernatural help. Um, and obviously, only a few times in, in, in the history of the world did that happen. We have the prophetic books and uh, and then we have this. Jesus is a prophet. He's the last prophet, really, um, in, in the Old Testament way, and he's given some really cool prophecy here. But you read the book of Joseph, uh, the, 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 the Jewish wars from Josephus, and what happened is he's talking about, you know, you, you need to let those who are in Judea flee. Why? Well, it doesn't really tell us other than there's going to be some problems. But if God tells you to do something, what do you do? Okay. I'll try to understand that later. Well, what happened is all the Christians left the city and Judea and headed for the mountains when they saw this Rome come. They apparently, and Joseph doesn't tell us that, but apparently they saw this stuff that was uh, really a sign. Most of the Jews stayed. And you can read Joseph as I won't give you all of it, but it was it's amazing. I mean, you could make the case that nothing ever that bad has ever happened since then. They're eating their own young. 
it, it, somewhere around, it, and again, Josephus may be using hyperbole, I don't know, but uh, somewhere around a million Jews got killed in that short period. And it, it, you read the stuff that he, he wrote, it's just amazing. And it does seem to fit, the, but the Christians fled. They listened because you guys, get out of here. It, it was a warning um, to do what, what God told them. It was going to happen. It, you know, it had to be tough for everybody, whether you're a Christian or Jew, to see this wonderful structure along with the city around it completely to be destroyed. But when you look at these, just to kind of get some summary here of the teachings of Jesus, many imposters that will deceive a lot of people came. We do see that happen, you know. But again, I, I think you always kind of have to have an open hand and say, will that happen again? Well, we even know Paul told us that. Imposters come all the time. But that happened in the first century. People were saying, I'm the one. And there was intense conflict, famines, earthquakes, and the temple's destruction. Um, and this is the big one. We know that the disciples were persecuted prior to the temple's destruction. Um, you can read Paul's letters. You can read Peter's letters. Traditionally, we think both Peter and Paul were killed in Rome around 68 A.D., um, persecuted for their faith. Um, but look what Jesus told them. Don't, don't worry about what you say. You know, I've heard people use this for their own self. It's like, well, first of all, you weren't there. And can God give you this? Certainly. But this isn't a promise for you, necessarily. It's a promise for them. Uh, I think the Holy Spirit will be with people. We've seen this happen since then. But this is the guy, when you get persecuted, don't worry about what to say. I'll give you what to say. I'll remind you what to say. And we see that with Paul. We see that with Peter. We see that with all of them. And if you read the, like Fox's Book of Martyrs and these different things, there's tradition that every disciple, with the exception of John, was killed for the faith. And John was exiled to Patmos, you know, so it didn't go swimmingly for him either. Um, and so this was a warning to them, uh, to tell them that, you know, the cost of your discipleship is going to be high, but I'll be with you. Which, and even if it doesn't directly apply to us, does that help you? I mean, it, I mean, think about the people, you've probably read about it. Think about the Christians, well, even in Israel right now, and, and Lebanon, but in, you know, in Indonesia or China or Iran or Iraq. I bet those, those words are really helpful. You're going to get persecuted, but I'm with you. And there's other places that say it too. So again, we, we want to understand in context what it means for those who Jesus has talking to, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have a lot of meaning for us. And the destruction of Jerusalem and temple caused great distress. It's like, you know, I don't want to be flippant or anything, but it's kind of like, well, duh. I mean, that's going to be a big deal. This was the corner of, of their faith. And think about it. What is the big deal? When you go through Leviticus and you go through Numbers and you go through Deuteronomy and even Exodus, the temple is the key, right? That's where the sacrifices are made. You can't do them anywhere else. It's been 1,953 years since that thing's been standing really no official sacrifices could be made. But why don't we worry about official sacrifices? Well, because Jesus gave us the final sacrifice. We don't need more sacrifices. You know, read Hebrews, you know, the slaughtering rams and goats were, were something you were supposed to do, but not anymore because the once offered in final sacrifice. 
So because of these four things, Jesus warns his closest followers, and you see those in those verses. Again, uh, this information, teaching was primarily for their benefit, and we'll, we will look at the rest of the Olivet Discourse next week. We'll look at, I do think he switches. Um, and again, people can say, well, how do you know? It's like, well, I'm not 100% sure. And it is tough. I've even had people tell me, why do you say probably in the pulpit? Why don't you say you know? And it's like, because I don't. <laughs> I think it's just you got to hold on a little loosely here. I think this makes sense to me. There may be people who think it's a different way, and that's okay. We need to talk with each other. The, it, again, what are we supposed to get from this? This was definitely helpful. We know that historically for the first century folks. It definitely tells us about the character of Jesus and the character of God, that he does care about those people, and even when they're being persecuted, he's still with them. This is great for the any Christian who's going through persecution or even any type of suffering. Um, what I do think he's doing clearly, and we know this is true, and you can read the, the texts uh, as you look at this, because he says, if anyone says, look, here is the Christ, we can look at that two different ways, right? You can say, here's another one, he's warned against that, or maybe he's saying, this is the temple's destruction, this is the second coming. He said, no, 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 that's not it. And he separates it. I really think he does that. Um, but he gives them warnings. He gives them signs. They should know when this starts. And we'll get into that a little bit next week. But for us today, as we, we finish up here, there's two s essential issues in play here that we need to keep in mind. The first one has to do with Jesus being trusted. Now, I don't know if you know this. Um, well, you probably do. Do you know there's atheists in America? There's a, actually, unfortunately, that group is growing, um, and that doesn't, I mean, obviously, you don't want that, but our mandate doesn't change. We're, we're to focus on Jesus and make disciples. Whether, it, if it's successful, that's really up to God anyway, right? I mean, we want to do better, I realize that. Um, but there was, there, there's the new atheists, which are really kind of not as new as they used to be. There was four main ones, and you can, uh, but the old atheists, one of them was Bertrand Russell. I don't know if anybody heard of him. He was a very bright man, but uh, I think I can say this. He was quite annoying, you know. Uh, but he said, along with, and a lot of his, quote, disciples said this, that Jesus, using the Olivet Discourse, he said, and this will make a little bit more sense next week, that Jesus predicted his second coming at the destruction of the temple. And it didn't happen. So Jesus is a false prophet. I'm giving you a possibility that maybe Jesus wasn't saying the second coming, and I don't think he was, and the, and the temple were the same time. We'll look at this a little more deeply next week. But what's at stake here? I think, and, and we always try to do that at Grace Church, equip you to be able to make a good case for things. If you have an atheist that read Bertrand Russell and says, well, see, Jesus, you can't, you can say, well, that's, that's Bertrand Russell's version of interpreting that text, but I don't think it's correct. I think Jesus nailed it. I mean, he nailed it. He's going to say, um, this generation will not pass away. He says that in Matthew. Well, how long is a generation normally in the Bible? It's about 40 years. When was this given? About 30 A.D. When was the destruction of the temple? 40 years later. That's either a really good prophecy or a lot of coincidence. I think I'll go with the former on that. 
if you read the text the way you should read the text, I think it fits, and Jesus is trusted. And you, it, for you today, that might not matter, and that's fine. I, I'm glad it doesn't, but you might just come across somebody who it does, and maybe just a little bit of work. Think about that. When you read the Bible, yes, do it for personal knowledge of Jesus and getting closer to God, but don't forget to read it just in case somebody might have a question that you might just be able to point them a little bit closer to Jesus. And hopefully if that makes you feel bad, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. <laughs> I hope it makes you feel good, you know. And if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know, but I, I, I am faithful that Jesus in the Bible is accurate and we can figure it out together. And the other one is how wise is to hold tightly to specific interpretations here. That's why I use the word probably. I mean, people have been arguing about this for 2,000 years, literally, about exactly what happened, especially with next week's stuff. And, and that's, I think, arguing is fine if you're respectful. Um, I, I, I talked about Greg Kokel. He might have one view. Uh, John MacArthur might have another one. R.C. Sproul, when he's around, could have one. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, all these heavy hitters don't agree exactly on how this is all going to work. Uh, but the worst thing you can do, in my opinion, is to quit reading it. Don't get cocky. Always be humble. Should have worn my shirt. Hold it a little bit loosely, but again, you get to know God better. He put it in here for a reason. Uh, I think we always want to try to find out what that reason is. Knowing that you might find out, you may hold to a particular way of looking at it and through the power of the Spirit and the wisdom and grace of another person or a group of people, you might maybe see it from a different perspective, and that's okay. Because essentially, does it make any difference when Jesus comes back? Doesn't it make more sense, that, and he's going to tell us that next week, are you ready? Are you ready? If you're ready, that's the main thing. Let him take care of the timing. And I think where we get in trouble when we major in the minors and we worry about timing and sequence, which is okay to some extent, and we forget that the whole thing is to live a life worthy of a calling and follow the Jesus and the teachings that he tells us to do. Notice there's no prescriptive teachings in here for us, just for them. You don't have to head for the hills. They did. <laughs> but there may be some wisdom in that for us in the future we don't know um, that's something we have to look into but again, I, I, again he was a true prophet and these texts do mean something let's always keep that and next week we will look more deeply into it looking at more of what I would say is those days which talks about the second coming and then he uses some really cool Old Testament imagery to help us understand maybe that what that will look like uh, let us pray Fathers, we get into this text, such a wonderful prophecy that's uh, really, if you look at it clearly, uh, this was so integral and special for those first century Christians that understood that you cared about them so much to warn them uh, what was going to happen. Uh, we know that we can look at these texts in many different ways, but may we always uh, come with a, a hat in our hand and re realize that only you clearly know, but you give us enough, and we can continue to try to understand you better as we get into them. For, for us today, uh, uh, keep us safe as we go into uh, cold weather, uh, uh, but may our hearts always be warmed by your spirit.
And may we always want to know your word more and more, no matter how complicated it might get. May we realize that you give it to them, but for us, so we can know you better each day. Amen.